Good morning and good afternoon, Rounds Tables listeners. Thanks for tuning in as always this week. I'm joined by my fellow colleague, Dr. Laura Walker, who's a fellow in our GIM Fellowship Program at the University of Toronto. Fellow Laura, good day and welcome on the show. Thanks so much for having me again, Kieran. So Laura's chosen an excellent article for this week. I think it's of interest to a wide audience. Laura, why don't you introduce the article for us? Okay, so the title of my article is Ramasazumab or Alendronate for Fracture Prevention in Women with Osteoporosis. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September of this year. This year being 2017, if you're listening to this next year. Yep. And Ramasazumab is quite a mouthful. Try to say that five times fast, which you're going to have to do several times today. Laura, what's the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line for this article is that in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis who were at a high fracture risk, treatment with remesazumab for 12 months followed by alendronate resulted in a significantly lower fracture risk than those who used alendronate alone. Excellent. Sounds promising for improvements on osteoporosis treatment. Tell me, why did you choose this article? So I chose this article because osteoporosis is something that affects women worldwide and will likely become more common as we have an aging population. In 2000, for example, there were an estimated 9 million osteoporotic fractures worldwide, and this number will likely increase. And as we know, many of these fractures, especially hip fractures, can have substantial impact on patients' morbidity and mortality. So what do we use, Laura, as the mainstays of treatment for osteoporosis in 2017? So the main pharmacologic agents that we use to treat osteoporosis, other than vitamin D and calcium supplementation, are anti-resorptive agents such as bisphosphonates and denosumab, and the bone-forming agent teriparatide, which, as the name suggests, is assisting in bone formation, which is its primary role. And as per the Canadian osteoporosis guidelines, many of the anti-resorptive agents are recommended as first line for treatment of high-risk osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. And teriparatide, which is the bone-forming agent, is usually used uh, second line or if someone has failed on a bisphosphonate. That being said, there have been very few head-to-head studies comparing different pharmacologic agents for osteoporosis. And as the study points out, there is only one trial that actually evaluates anti-resorptive therapy versus bone-forming therapy that uses fracture as a primary endpoint. And this is exactly what the study set out to look at. All right. Makes sense to me. What did they do? How did they design their trial and where did it take place? So this was a multi-center randomized double-blind trial, and it was conducted in over 40 countries across the globe, including Canada and the United States. And almost 4,100 patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to receive either Romasazumab for 12 months, followed by alendronate versus alendronate alone, which was the control group. And baseline bone mineral density testing, x-rays of the thoracic and lumbar spine, as well as serum bone turnover markers were obtained. And these were followed throughout the study every three to 12 months, depending on the modality. And who are the patients they included in this study? Their sort of inclusion and exclusion criteria, so to speak. So patients were included in the study if they were ambulatory postmenopausal women who were between the ages of 55 and 90 years old, and they also had to meet one of the following criteria. So they either had to have a bone mineral density T-score of negative 2.5 or less at the total hip or femoral neck, and they had to have one or more moderate or severe vertebral fractures, so moderate being a 25 to 40% reduction in vertebral height 
and severe being a 40% uh, or more reduction in vertebral height, or they had to have two or more mild vertebral fractures. So mild being a 20 to 25% reduction in vertebral height. Or, so they had to have a T-score of negative two or less at the total hip or femoral neck, and they had to have two or more moderate or severe vertebral fractures, or they had to have a fracture of the proximal femur sustained three to 12 months prior to randomization. So those were the inclusion criteria and the exclusion criteria. So women were excluded if they were unable to take alendronate, for example, if they had esophageal intolerance to bisphosphonates, or if they had a contraindication to alendronate, such as an EGFR of less than 35. So that was uh, a lot to digest. I apologize. Uh, No, I'd actually say that was a lot to resorb. But basically, Laura, what you're saying is that the patients in this group were postmenopausal women with established osteoporosis that at high risk for fracture, and that was manifested by either prior vertebral fractures or hip fractures. Does that sort of sum it up? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's move on to what they actually did. Uh, what was the intervention for this trial? So before I talk about the intervention, I want to briefly explain what romasazumab is. So romasazumab is a new monoclonal antibody that binds to inhibits sclerostin. And sclerostin is a protein that is secreted by osteocytes, and its main function is to inhibit bone formation. Therefore, Romasazumab, by inhibiting sclerostin, is seen as a bone-forming agent, and the study states that it actually has a dual action of promoting bone formation and decreasing bone resorption as well. So the purpose of this study was to compare the new romasazumab, which is a bone-forming agent, against an anti-resorptive agent, which was alendronate, which is a commonly prescribed medication used for osteoporosis. All right. Thanks for that background. That's helpful. So how did they proceed to compare these two in a randomized fashion? So the intervention in this trial was as follows. So women were randomly assigned in one-to-one fashion to receive either once monthly subcutaneous injections of romasazumab for 12 months, followed by once weekly alendronate thereafter until the end of the trial, Or they were assigned to the control group, which received alendronate alone during the first 12 months and then thereafter until the end of the study period. For the first 12 months, when the patients were receiving either romasazumab or alendronate, this was conducted in a double-blind fashion. Uh, And in the following months, where all patients were receiving alendronate, this was conducted in an open-label fashion. However, the initial treatment assignment remained blinded, and patients also received daily calcium and vitamin D supplementation if needed throughout this trial. So what you're saying is that patients got injections either of the romasazumab or placebo injection, and then a lendronate or placebo pill, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Um, And is there any risk of unmasking or that people could figure out that the injections were romasazumab or not? For example, is there known adverse effects locally at the site of injection for romasazumab? So I'll get into this um, in the results section, but there were more injection site reactions in the romasazumab group, such as pain, swelling, uh, erythema. However, there were injection site reactions in the placebo group as well. So uh, unmasking wasn't a major issue. Okay. 
What was the primary outcome that they looked at? How did they measure the effects of these agents, uh, ramasazumab against alendronate? So the primary outcome was the cumulative incidence of new vertebral fractures at 24 months and the cumulative incidence of clinical fracture, which they defined as non-vertebral and symptomatic vertebral fracture at the time of the primary analysis. The primary analysis was performed in a time-to-event fashion, whereby it was performed when clinical fractures had been confirmed in at least 330 patients, and all the patients had to have completed the 24-month visit. Important secondary outcomes to note were bone mineral density scores of the lumbar spine, total hip, and femoral neck at 12 and 24 months. All right, Laura, break a leg. What were the main findings of this study? So a total of about 4,100 patients underwent randomization and 77% of them, so approximately 3,100, completed the primary analysis period. So the main findings were that rumosazumab followed by alendronate resulted in a 48% reduction of new vertebral fractures at 24 months, which was one of the primary outcomes compared to alendronate alone. So 6.2% of patients in the romosazumab group sustained a new vertebral fracture by 24 months compared to 11.9% of patients in the alendronate group. So that's sort of a 5% absolute risk reduction, and that would be what a number needed to treat of about 20? Yeah, exactly. Okay, carry on. So in addition, patients who were in the romosazumab group had a 27% lower risk of clinical fracture at the time of the primary analysis, which was the other primary outcome, compared to patients who were randomized to alendronate alone. So 9.7% of patients in the romosazumab group had sustained a new clinical fracture by the time of the primary analysis, compared to 13% of patients in the alendronate group. And these results were both statistically significant. So essentially, we're looking at two different ways to assess its efficacy, one specifically in vertebral fractures, and then secondly, in clinical fractures, which is a little bit broader. Is that what they're what they're reporting here? Yes, exactly. The second one. So clinical fractures include non-vertebral and clinical vertebral or symptomatic vertebral fractures. Yes. Got it. And how about these secondary outcomes? Anything important there? So with respect to secondary outcomes, patients who were in the romosazumab group also had greater gains in bone mineral density when compared to their baseline than those who were in the alendronate group alone. This was true when the bone mineral density was measured at all three sites and at all time points throughout the study. And interestingly, the bone mineral density gains that were achieved in the romosazumab group at the 12-month mark were maintained at month 36, even after they had been switched to alendronate for the prior two years. Mechanistically, that makes sense. And as you explained in the introduction, that's sort of how, partially how romosazumab works. So that's not surprising, but concordant with, with the findings of the positive trial. Laura, anything interesting you wanted to point out or any concerns you had about some of the methodology or other things in the trial? Yeah, so the most interesting thing I came across was with respect to adverse events noticed in each group. So to start off, with respect to adverse events, most events such as osteonecrosis of the jaw, hypocalcemia, and hypersensitivity reactions were similar between the two groups. There were, as I previously mentioned, more injection site reactions in the romosazumab group at the 12-month mark. However, 
This was not the most exciting thing. The most significant concern that the results of the trial had was that there was actually found to be an increased number of cardiovascular adverse events at the 12-month mark, including cardiac ischemic events and cerebrovascular events in the romasazumab group. So 2.5% of patients in the romosazumab group versus 1.9% of patients in the alendronate group reported these events, leading to an odds ratio of approximately 1.31. And the authors postulated that this may have been due to the fact that sclerostin, again, which is the protein that romosazumab inhibits, is constitutively expressed in the aorta, and it is also upregulated in the vasculature when there is vascular calcification. So although the function of sclerostin in the aorta and the vasculature still hasn't been entirely elucidated, they actually postulate that perhaps it inhibits vascular calcification, and therefore inhibition of sclerostin itself could actually lead to increased vascular calcification, leading to increased cardiovascular events. However, studies trying to demonstrate this effect have yielded conflicting results. So we still aren't really entirely sure why we saw the higher number of cardiovascular events in the romosazumab group. So further studies will need to explore this further. Right. And this study was empowered to detect differences on its safety outcomes. So it would really need to be studied again to truly discern whether there was a concerning difference or not. But definitely a warning signal that shouldn't be ignored with some biological plausibility behind it. So uh, interesting point. Thank you for bringing that up. What do you think overall as far as the strengths and weaknesses of this trial, Laura? Is it uh, to be accepted or do we have a fatal flaw in there? So I think the strengths of this study include the fact that there were a large number of patients, the fact that it focused on patients with osteoporosis who are at high fracture risk. So these are the patients who typically are most likely to be prescribed pharmacological agents in the first place. And another strength was that they did a fairly novel thing by comparing a bone forming agent with an anti-resorptive agent using fracture as their primary outcome. So those were the main strengths that I found in the study. So the main weakness of this study. One of them included the fact that because it was a head-to-head trial, they didn't compare the treatments to placebo. Rather, they compared them to each other. But this is what a lot of trials have to do nowadays. They have to compare a new drug to standard of care rather than placebo due to ethical concerns. Right. It wouldn't be ethical to place a patient on a placebo without any osteoporosis treatment if they were at high risk. And I guess ultimately it leaves us with the question of what is the, you know, quote unquote, true effect on reduction in fracture of romosizumab, which we don't know. We only know what it is in a, on top of fracture reduction from alendronate. Uh, but that's a limitation we're not going to be able to get around, I don't think. Laura, so how are our clinicians and healthcare providers going to apply this study? So this study applies to postmenopausal women who are over the age of 55 and who have established osteoporosis that is considered relatively high risk. And what's the main learning points for our listeners to take away as we wrap it up? So the interpretation from this article is that postmenopausal women with osteoporosis who are at high risk of fracture, uh, treatment with romosazumab for 12 months followed by alendronate resulted in a significantly lower fracture risk than alendronate alone. However, this needs to be weighed against the increased number of cardiovascular events that was observed in the romosazumab group. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, one of the things I would have liked to see in, I guess, one of the secondary outcomes would be some sort of a symptom directed or patient centered outcome. You know, do, do these fractures actually result in significant disability or pain? 
or are they something that they're finding radiographically and the patients don't even know? So that that might have been interesting to sort of improve the impact of this trial. But nevertheless, I agree. Very interesting findings. Great. So did you want to move on to your article, Kieran? I'd love to. So I'm going to change gears completely. We have a good mixed bag for listeners today, and it's going to be something near and dear to my heart where we're going to be looking at a recent randomized trial published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in July of 2017, examining the impact of palliative care consultation in advanced heart failure on the quality of life with patients who have heart failure. Oh, that sounds really interesting. So what's the bottom line for this article, Kieran? Well, Laura, in this randomized controlled trial of 150 patients with advanced heart failure, those who received concurrent care with an interdisciplinary specialized palliative care team showed consistently greater benefits in quality of life, um, anxiety, depression, and spiritual well-being compared with those who just received usual care. Oh, very interesting. So why did you decide to choose this article for this week? Well, beyond, you know, that palliative care is near and dear to my heart, no pun intended, we know just how common heart failure is worldwide. And, you know, most of us are aware of the significant mortality and costs that are associated with heart failure. But what people don't often think about is the fact that heart failure progression is a frightening and uncomfortable experience for patients uh, with both physical and psychological sequelae. So patients with heart failure commonly experience depression, poor quality of life, and spiritual distress. The high mortality rates and poor quality of life for patients with heart failure prompted leading cardiovascular societies to recommend the early involvement of palliative care as an interdisciplinary approach designed to improve symptoms, pain, and quality of life. But presently, high-quality randomized trials examining the effect of palliative care on the quality of life and heart failure are lacking. So the PAL-HF trial was designed to answer this important patient-centered question. Oh, very interesting. So can you briefly summarize the study design? How was it designed and where did it take place? So it's a prospective single-center randomized control trial that was conducted at the Duke University Medical Center between the years of 2012 and 2016. And who were the patients in this study? Um, the inclusion criteria were quite simple. They were patients who were hospitalized with heart failure, and they were at high risk of rehospitalization or death, as indicated by something that we call the ESCAPE score, which is a validated cardiovascular risk score. And patients who had a score of greater than or equal to four corresponded to a greater than 50% predicted six-month mortality. So they were um, sort of end-stage heart failure, very sick population. Now, they excluded people who'd had an acute coronary syndrome within the prior 30 days, and perhaps that their heart failure was due to the acute coronary syndrome, and they might actually recover somewhat. Those who, were, uh, who had recently had cardiac resynchronization therapy or were planned to have it shortly, if you had heart failure due to severe stenotic valvular disease like aortic stenosis that could be fixed with surgery or TAVI, or if you were awaiting a heart transplant or ventricular assist device within six months. They also excluded people on dialysis uh, or if you had a non-cardiac terminal illness. So basically, Kieran, patients were included in the study if they had severe end-stage heart failure with non-reversible causes. That's the gist of, I think, the population that they're trying to capture here, which is, I think, an appropriate population. Okay. So what was the intervention? So they randomized patients one-to-one -to, -one to receive palliative care intervention or usual care. So the palliative care intervention involved a multidisciplinary team, including a palliative care certified physician. And the study team assessed and managed multiple domains of quality of life for patients with advanced heart failure. 
So that included addressing their physical symptoms, their psychosocial and spiritual concerns, and advanced care planning. Um, then a certified palliative care nurse practitioner coordinated these aspects of the patient's care in collaboration with the patient's clinical cardiology team. And they focused on goal setting and sharing uh, to combine heart failure symptom relief with palliative care goals. So what was the primary outcome for this study? The primary outcome they looked at was the change in self-reported health-related quality of life questionnaire scores that were administered at 2, uh, 6, 12, and 24 weeks. So these scores, um, one of them is called the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, and it looks generally at specific health-related quality of life and heart failure-specific symptoms and quality of life. And then they used another validated tool called the FACET-PAL, which is the Functional Assessment of Chronic Illness Therapy, the Palliative Care Scale. So just to break these scales a little bit down for you, the, the Kansas City scale is a 23-item that's scored from 0 to 100. The higher the score, the better your health status. So people who are in poor health and quality of life have a score closer to zero. And the FACET-PAL is a 46-item measure that sort of looks at generic quality of life in several domains as far as sort of physical well-being, social family well-being, emotional, functional, etc. And those are from ranging from zero to 184. And again, higher scores indicate better quality of life. So after they looked at these quality of life scores, uh, what were the main findings? So they enrolled 150 patients, and these patients were sick. Each patient had an average of two hospitalizations in the prior year to enrollment. Interestingly, 45% of them had heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Just goes to show that we've learned that that's an equally significant disease as to heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. 80% of the population were sedentary most of the day and 85% of them rated their quality of life as poor. And then during the trial, 30% of individuals were hospitalized and 30% died. So a very, very sick population. So what did the quality of life scores show between the intervention and the control group? So let's talk about the heart failure specific one first, the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire. They found an improvement of 9.5 points over six months. Now, just to put that in context, a five-point change in the scale is considered to be a clinically meaningful difference. So that would be a statistically significant and clinically significant finding. And then the FACET-PAL scores improved almost 12 points over a six-month period. And for that scale, a 10-point change in the overall summary represents a clinically meaningful difference. And then I wanted to point out that these improvements started at about three months, where they started to notice differences in the scores, which is you know, interesting because it's not immediately after they're discharged from hospital when they start to feel better from their decompensation of their heart failure. It's actually a little bit down the road when they're being supported by these palliative care teams that they start to rate their quality of life as better. Well, that's really interesting. It would be counterintuitive to, to think that patients would feel their best when they were medically optimized for discharge. But it's really interesting that it took a while and it, it wasn't until that they were starting to really follow up with their palliative care physician in the community that their quality of life improved. That's really interesting. Yeah. And their depression and anxiety scores also significantly improved too. So across the board, as far as their primary and secondary outcomes, everything seemed to be improved when you had a palliative care team involved. So can you summarize your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses in this study? Were there any fatal flaws? You know, I don't think there's any fatal flaws. This is a single center trial, small numbers, but with significant findings. It really begs the question, 
can we reproduce this finding on a larger scale that's going to be involving different types of palliative care teams? So, you know, do, is there skill difference between the teams, which is not as easy to sort of standardize as a pill? And also, can we do it sort of more broadly as well as to roll it out in places that may or may not have these palliative care teams? So I, I think it's a, sort of a, a very interesting first step in this population, but, but more studies are definitely needed. So uh, to wrap things up, who does this study apply to? When you're seeing your patients in the community, who does this apply to? Yeah, I mean, as I said, these are very sick people. I think most of the people that I would know in this trial would be people I'd see on, on the inpatient ward. So it was a 70-year-old male or female with ischemic causes to cardiomyopathy with a generally even split between heart failure with reduced and preserved ejection fraction. Very symptomatic, NYHA class 3. Biochemically, a BNP, if you measured it, was over 10,000. So very, very sick in that regard. Um, and they'd had heart failure for about five years. So typically what we would see is the, the natural course for, I think, an end-stage heart failure. Okay. So what are the main learning points from this article? I think overall, in this sort of single-centered trial, we learned that palliative care has the uh, potential to improve the quality of life in patients with heart failure, a very important patient-centered outcome beyond sort of the hard outcomes of mortality and healthcare utilization. And I think that, you know, really it should be in the forefront of people's providers' brains that if you have an individual who's been hospitalized with heart failure and they have advanced symptomology and poor quality of life, you should consider a consultation with palliative care, if available, to help improve their end-of-life care. So, Kieran, does this change your practice right now? Uh, I think so, absolutely. I mean, I, I typically think about palliative care in a lot of heart failure individuals, but definitely it just continues to keep it at the forefront of my brain that as I care for these individuals and as our resources expand locally, more and more of these patients I'm going to be sending to my colleagues in palliative care. Great. Thank you so much, Kieran. Well, Laura, it's been a great show. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Laura, what is catching your attention this week? So the segment that I chose for today relates to one of my interests, which is medical education. And it relates to a new piece of technology that has become quite popular in the last couple of years, which is virtual reality. So there are now several companies such as Samsung and HTC that now have robust virtual reality platforms. So people can now enjoy an entirely different video game or movie experience in their own home. But what I find so fascinating about all of this is how virtual reality can potentially be applied to medical education. So there was an article this week in the UCSF News Center about how virtual reality or VR is revolutionizing the way that medical students are learning anatomy. So they piloted a new virtual reality curriculum in 2016 for their anatomy course in medical school that sort of bridges the gap between textbook learning and the learning that they receive in the cadaver lab. So by using virtual reality headsets to learn about anatomy, the medical students are able to remove, you know, every layer of muscle, fat, tendon, and see the relationships between each organ and surrounding structures. They're even able to zoom in and out at the microscopic level if desired. And this VR training is able to supplement the learning that they receive from textbooks and in the cadaver lab. I just think that it's so fascinating how far technology has come in the last 10, 15 years and the impact that it has had on education as a whole. And I'm really excited to see the potential applications that virtual reality will have in medical education in the future. That sounds virtually awesome. Pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Laura, my 
good stuff for the week is entitled Trimming the Fat. Now, everyone is increasingly aware that the epidemic of obesity and diabetes in North America, uh, and I'm all for encouraging healthy locally grown food. But Laura, don't you find it difficult to achieve this goal of eating healthy locally grown food at the same time of being able to afford it? Yeah, I completely agree with most people's budgets. It's virtually impossible to always buy locally grown food or always buy organic food. Well, hope is not all lost. It turns out that Washington, D.C.'s Capital Area Food Bank, which is one of the largest in the U.S., they decided to turn away junk food as a, a goal of improving the quality of the food that they fed their, their patrons. And Laura, they cut their junk food by 84% in a year. Wow, that's incredible. It really is incredible. Why did they do this? Well, 48% of the people at this capital area food bank that they serve have high blood pressure, 22% have diabetes, and very often they live with people who have diabetes or other diseases that are similarly related. And of course, you can imagine their doctors are on them saying, you know, you've got to reduce your salt and sugar in your diet. Otherwise, you know, your health is going to get worse. But as we said, this is easier said than done. So thankfully, the Capital Area Food Bank circled back to their grocery train donors. That's sort of their main supply of where their food comes from. Um, and as it turns out, these uh, grocery chains have been very receptive to this change. And not only that, it's been interesting as a consequence of this whole cultural change in the food banks. Food banks have seen an increase in donor funding by 22% since they started offering healthier options. So it's a win-win all around. Uh, healthcare system, individuals, food banks are offering healthier food. I love it. We're trimming the fat, sugar, and salt. That's wonderful. It's primary prevention at its best. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Laura, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to having you back next time with whatever the future beholds of your medical research interests. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Kieran. I had a great time. 